When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in the heart of downtown Santa Monica, the heart of Silicon Beach. Please be seated. we got a great show for you today. Um, beware, beware the Ides of March. That's the what the soothsayer says in Julius Caesar, as this is the day when Julius Caesar was assassinated. I don't know about you, but I've never really found the Ides of March to be particularly ominous. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the Southern Poverty Law Center and your role with it? Sure. So the Southern Poverty Law Center was founded in 1971 basically to finish up the, the civil rights battles that were still continuing even though we had passed you know, the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. In the 80s, the center began to investigate extremist groups, in particular the Klan, because we were involved in a lawsuit against the largest Klan group at the time that had had a lynching, actually, in Mobile of a young black man. And at that point, we realized that um, Klan groups and other extremist groups were not being monitored by federal law enforcement. And the department that I run is actually the one that tracks these hate groups and reports on them today. And and every year... The, you guys do a, a report basically on the year in hate. And That's right. Just, we have been putting out data on hate groups uh, in our year in hate report for you know a couple decades now. And and so your latest report has gotten a lot of attention, and, and its findings are quite troubling because and the hate is on the hate groups are on the rise for the second year in a row after falling for several years. Um, tell us about your finding and. and what do you think the causes are? Sure. So we saw a slight rise in the number of hate groups between 2015 and 2016. And the groups that saw the largest sort of you know growth of their chapters were, were groups that took advantage of the political cycle. In fact, there were groups that were very uh, supportive of President Trump and saw their memberships uh, increase. But the fact of the matter is that we're at near historic highs in the number of hate groups. Uh, in 2000, there were 602 of these organizations, and now we're nearing 1,000. So we have seen over the last you know, 15, 16 years a near doubling in the number of hate groups in the United States, and it's become a serious problem, actually. And over, over the years, has has there been changes in the hate groups depending on you know which party is in power or do hate groups increase when there's a democrat in power or has it been fairly consistent well i mean that's a very good question because there's two types of groups that we collect data on one are hate groups those are the groups you know people normally think of klansmen neo-nazis and so on and we also collect uh, data and put out a list on anti-government groups and when i say anti-government i'm not talking about groups that are for low taxes, I mean organizations that are basically run like militias, for example. And the patterns in those two sets of data are very different. Hate groups since 2000 have basically been going up more or less every year. And that didn't matter whether it was Democrats or Republicans, although the the election of the first African-American president did lead to a leap in hate groups. And the reason hate groups have been going up for so long 
is that in the year 2000 was when the census for the first time reported that whites would become a minority in the 2040s. And of course, if you're a white supremacist, that's very troubling because you can't run the government if you're a minority. So the hate group pattern since that time has basically been up. But anti-government groups follow a very different pattern, one that you alluded to, in that when Democrats are in power, the number of those militia-type organizations skyrocketed. That happened under Clinton. It happened under Obama. And Republicans come into office at the highest office. Those groups tend to tailor off. They feel more secure under Republican presidencies. And is that, is that trend continuing now with the Trump administration in office? Yeah, we saw um, in the last year the number of anti-government groups shrink by some. We also know, because we monitor things like the prepper community and so on, that purchases of survivalist gear are down. A lot of those organizations are concerned about their sales. We know sales of weapons have fallen. These are things indicative of activity in extreme anti-government movements. And so at least at this point, it looks like the pattern is going to follow what happened when Bush came into office. In other words, there were you know about 800 uh, militia-type groups before he came into office in 2000, and very quickly that dropped down to about 140 and stayed there throughout Bush's tenure. And then when uh, Obama came in, we saw that number skyrocket over 1,300. Our guess is we've seen a small drop over the last year in the number of those groups and that they'll continue to decline. So the, the number of hate groups declined from a peak of about, it looks like, close to a little over 1,000, 1,018 in 2011 and dropped nearly 25% by 2014 to about 784. And is it anything you attribute that to? One of the things about um, our hate group listings is, and that people should know, is we only put a group on there or a chapter of a group on there if they have engaged in some sort of real activity in the year we're looking at. So in other words, they've engaged in a rally or they've held a march or they did a flyering. It has to be something like that. And so one of the fluctuations in our hate group listings has to do with the fact that there may be a functioning chapter of a group there, but in that calendar year, they didn't actually go out and do something. So you have to take that into consideration. So we'll have, like, for example, a chapter in Atlanta of some Klan group that does a flyering one year, and then the next year we don't count them because they don't, but they're still there. They pop back up. So there's a little bit of that in the list. The other thing is these groups are, you know, notoriously private. They don't necessarily want people to know what they're up to. And so it's very difficult to get information on them in the first place. You have to take that as a caveat. I think the better way to look at the way the numbers have gone when you look over the longer expanse is to think about how many more there are today in an average year, even counting the 784 year that you were pointing to than there were 15 years ago, which indicates just growth across the entire sector. And, you know, I think you could point at the election this year as an example of motivating these types of people in a real way, and there being more of them to recruit. So what defines a hate group? You know, for example, I'm a Red Sox fan, and we hate the Yankees, but I don't think that qualifies us as a a hate group. (laughs) No, 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 that would not definitely not be. hate group um, based on the statements of their and what the sort of web violent and that's an important thing to know although a lot of these groups are violent and what we're looking for is does the organization believe that a whole other group of people based on their inherent characteristics are they lesser so you know white supremacist group that thinks Jews should be exterminated because they're dangerous would obviously fit the bill a lot of people don't realize that we also have black hate groups on our list. So, for example, we list the Nation of Islam because they, in their official theology, say that all whites, and the key word is all, all whites are blue-eyed devils. So that's how you get on the list. Now, um, so we see this uptick again as we approach the election. Do you have any evidence or a sense of why that is increasing? Well, the groups that saw the most growth uh, in the last, you know, between 2015 and 2016 were organizations that literally tethered themselves to Trump. And when I say that, you know, for example, a group called Daily Stormer, 
which called Trump the glorious leader and is, you know, obviously very pro-Trump, it saw its Alexa ratings and readership online skyrocket. But in the last year, it also moved from just an online hub to a real-world hub, establishing what they call book clubs in about 30 cities across the United States. Similar things happen in groups that tethered themselves to the Trump message. They saw growth in their membership, growth in their chapters, growth in their website reader, you know, audience, and those kinds of things. And that's the most significant thing that happened in 2016 in the hate world, because never before have we seen hate groups who cared really about either candidate at the national office level. In other words, they obviously hated Democrats, but they had nothing to do with Republicans as well, because they, ne- they felt sort of a pox on both their houses, neither party represents white racial interests. These organizations, like Daily Stormer, National Vanguard, others, felt very strongly that the Trump candidacy was one that represented their racial interests. And why do you, why do you think that is? What aspect of Trump was, was appealing to them? Well, the first day of Trump's candidacy, of course, he made some really horrible statements about Mexicans as rapists. And as you went through the campaign, those weren't the only kinds of racist statements uh, that were made by him. He said a lot of terrible things about Muslims, for example. He ended up um, tweeting or retweeting either he or his campaign officials uh, items that came directly off of white supremacist websites, things about, for example, like black crime is exploding when it's not things about white genocide. There was even a tweet about Hillary Clinton that was uh, viewed as anti-Semitic by many. So his messaging was there, was, you know, music to their ears, because these are the messages that they're pumping out, right? That black crime is out of control, that Jews are pernicious, that Mexicans are destroying the country. This is all the same language that they would use. And on a concrete front, a policy front, the idea of a border wall started in the 1980s by a man named David Duke, who you might remember Trump acted like he didn't know during the campaign. It took a long time to denounce. And that border wall is now part of Trump's uh, policies. The Muslim ban is something these people would love. So it's policies and rhetoric that dovetailed with their views. Now, uh, on our our show notes, we actually have uh, an image of the tweet, um, one of the tweets that um, candidate Trump have forwarded from white genocide TM and uh, who was known to be a, a white supremacist and then also we have um, the tweet you mentioned um, Hillary Clinton meets in secret with international banks to plot this destruction of US sovereignty in order to enrich her donors and uh, apparently the um, Jewish groups were quite outraged by that because they really saw that as code for Jew. Yeah, well, I mean, those are two great examples of what I'm talking about. White genocide is a concept completely constructed by white supremacists, a false concept, that because the share of the white population worldwide is getting smaller, which is largely because there are more Chinese and uh, more South Asians and so on, that somehow this is a calculated calculated genocide to wipe out white people. Uh, There is no impending doom for white people, plus the entire notion is actually stupid on its face because we're no different than East Asians or Indians or whatever the case might be. And then the anti-Semitism was roundly condemned, but it was definitely there in this idea that there's a global cabal with the symbology of the star that was on that piece from Clinton. And those those are great examples, but there were many, many more throughout the campaign. Now... We're talking about hate groups, and, and since the election of Trump, there's also been a marked rise in hate crimes across the country. You know, um, Jewish community centers are getting bomb threats on, on a regular basis. Cemeteries being defaced. Um, you know, attacks. You know, there was the incident in Kansas City where um, an Indian gentleman was killed because the you know, the, the nut who shot him thought he was Iranian, of all things. And can, can you speak to that phenomenon? And, and, and you know, is that really a, a phenomenon? And why why do you think it's happening? Sure. Well, look, the day after the election, after Trump was um, became president-elect, we started getting inundated at our offices in Montgomery, Alabama, with calls about what looked like hate crimes, hate incidents, people being screamed at in the street with epithets, some of them in Trump's name. 
and we started to collect information on those incidents and very very quickly um you know in just a few days after the election got to like 450 of them and very shortly after that over a thousand and those are unprecedented numbers of something that we have collected for years actually so we know that having a thousand of these incidents in you know 40 or 50 days is way higher than normal the more important part about this more troubling part um is that about a fifth of these incidents were done in trump's name in other words the perpetrator brought up trump or said you know trump said you should get out of the country or whatever ugly thing it might have been and on top of all that we had a president-elect who seemed completely unwilling to denounce that this outbreak of violence was happening and so his emboldened supporters have just continued in this vein and you know the example you talked about just now um, the Indian person, you know, somebody said, get out of your country. And that's the kind of phrasing that Trump, you know, Trump supporters have been using. And actually, this all started during the campaign. There were quite a few hate crimes that were committed, very serious, violent ones, by people who were Trump supporters, like, you know, an attempted, you know, shooting at a mosque and a beating of an immigrant in Boston. So this has been the fallout of, of this election cycle and of the hate speech that the campaign is engaged in, frankly. And... The president has been criticized for his response. Um, you know, one question to him during a press conference with the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, on the rise in anti-Semitic activity was to say, "You know, make it about him. I'm the least anti-Semitic guy you'll you'll meet." And uh, but uh, and but often they have not responded at all. And apparently. A, a, number of civil rights groups have petitioned the president to speak out more forcefully and they've, they've stated that it's clear that the president has been slow to respond to hate incidents when he has responded at all we strongly believe the president has a moral obligation to use his bully pulpit to speak out against acts of hatred when they occur and that is is that is one of the rules of the, that office that that office can truly set a tone for good or for bad. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, look, we have been calling on Trump to speak out forcefully about these incidents, you know, now for months. And the contrast here is George uh, W. Bush, after 9-11, speaking in a mosque when people were being killed because people thought they were Muslim, right, retaliation for the 9-11 attacks. Bush clearly denounced anti-Muslim Tree said, you know, Muslims are part of our family and our friends and so on. And we haven't seen anything but, you know, Trump basically pulled dragging and kicking to say things against these incidents that are happening in his name and as a result of his campaign rhetoric. And he could tamp this down if he wanted to. Now, he finally did in his speech to Congress a couple weeks ago say one sentence about that. But that is, you know, essentially uh, cowardice on this point. And the price is the violence that's broken out. And it's just beyond me to understand why the president of the United States can't speak out against hate violence. It doesn't seem that controversial. Well, it, and not only has he not spoken out against that in, 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 a, in a meaningful way, but the administration has also taken the militia groups off the terror watch list. I mean, basically, for now, the terror watch list only concerns Islamic groups, you know, um, homegrown terrorists, which who are the ones who commit most of the terrorist acts within the United States, are no longer being uh, on the watch list. Yeah, it looks like the Countering Violent Extremism program that under the prior administration was both targeting, you know, radical Islamic folks as well as white supremacists and anti-government types that the Trump administration feels like it should only focus on Islamic extremists. And that's very unfortunate because, as you just pointed out, the truth is is that most terrorism domestically, right, within the 50 states, is committed by white males, either inspired by rabid anti-government thoughts, ideas, or by white supremacist ideology. There are actually relatively few radical Islamic attacks domestically, thank God. And so if the Trump administration continues down that road, they will be taking their eye off the ball of the next Dylan Roof or Fraser Glenn Miller. These are, you know, some spectacular domestic terrorist attacks, one against black people, one against Jews that have happened in the last few years. And it's it's an asinine policy, frankly. And um, 
one policy that we have, however, is we must take breaks every now and then for our sponsors. So we're going to take a short break, and we come back, we'll talk more with the Southern Poverty Law Center on hate in the USA after these messages. You're listening to Cybalon Business Report, only on cranberry.fm. More of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. How much are your best ideas worth? PriorThings.com gives you an added layer of protection for all of your intellectual property, ideas, and creative things. New business idea, pitch deck, PowerPoint presentation, song lyrics, source code, killer blog posts. We help you protect it all. How do we do it? We use the same technology platform that secures transactions for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Learn more at PriorThings.com. Check out exclusive listener pricing for Cranberry Radio listeners by going to bit.ly slash Founders Circle. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white-label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. Cranberry Radio is your new destination for education, entertainment, and engagement. Browse through our complete library of programs at cranberry.fm or on demand through iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, and Google Play. Don't worry, you can still access all of our great webmasterradio.fm programs at cranberry.fm. Refresh your bookmarks today to Cranberry Radio at cranberry.fm. Cranberry Radio, online anytime at cranberry.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. And we're back and we're talking about hate in the USA. And we're talking with Heidi Burridge of the Southern Poverty Law Center and um, the they monitor hate groups and extremist groups um, going back now for over 20 years. And so, Heidi, we we're talking about this um, the lack of reaction to this growth in the hate activity, and which brings us to, I guess, an event from the weekend, I think it was, where you have um, Congressman King saying um, some pretty outrageous statements that um, in relation to the election going on in the Netherlands, that the um, the nationalist candidate there, Wilders, understands, quote, that culture and demographics are our destiny. We can't restore our civilization with somebody else's babies, period. And that has sparked quite uh, an outcry, but remarkably very little of it on the Republican side and there's very little denunciation of him by by Republicans raising concerns that the Republicans are openly embracing or normalizing um, white supremacism. Yeah, well, it was kind of an astounding uh, set of comments from King, not just the baby's comment that you're talking about there, but also um, one made the the next day about how whites don't have to worry about being taken over because blacks and Hispanics will fight each other. I mean, let's face it, Steve King's comments are just flat-out white nationalists. They're indistinguishable from most of the hate groups that we're dealing with. And really what's amazing here is the lack of condemnation uh, from his fellow uh, party members. Because I can remember a time not that long ago when uh, George Allen, when he was running for Senate in Virginia, used the word macaca, and the GOP quickly dropped him, just that it had nothing more to do with him. His candidacy was over. So there is a transformation that's going on that's um, you know made very plain by the lack of a censure for uh, Steve King and also by the kinds of comments and things that Trump got away with during his uh, run for the presidency that show that we have a very different uh, GOP today than we did before. 
And, you know, I saw that Max Boot, a, you know, former very loyal conservative right. in the Republican Party, said this morning, I think in foreign policy or somewhere, that it's a party of white nationalists now. I hope to God that's not the case, but this is very troubling. And going back in history, um, you know, today is the to march, although I don't think anything ominous has happened to you. I've, I've fared pretty well so far. But 52 years ago, President Johnson stood before Congress a couple of days after Bloody Sunday in Selma and said, we have to address this. We have to, you know, we can no longer deny these people the fundamental right to vote, and we shall overcome. And 52 years later, we, we, we have it, it seems. Um, yeah. <laughs> the Voting Rights Act has been you know, partially gutted, um, and an act that had been passed near unanimously by both houses uh, time and time again. Now, you know, even though um, Jim Sensenbrenner, who, who who authored you know the last reauthorization of the of the Voting Rights Act and who authored legislation to remedy the um, constitutional issues raised by the Supreme Court, you know there hasn't even been a hearing on the bill, you know, he's introduced it in each Congress in, in any, in ever, ever, since you know, no one's picked it up. No Republicans are saying, okay, let's run with this. Yeah, well, I mean, one thing we... <laughs> One thing we know is that obviously racism wasn't uh, dead because a black man was elected to the White House, right? We right. have these incredible um, sort of retrogressions happening now, whether it's on uh, voting rights, civil rights, you know, what is acceptable commentary in terms of race in public. Uh, and actually, the moment that we're sitting in looks a little bit more like 1924 in the United States when the Klan had four million members and neither the Democratic nor Republican parties in the midst of a presidential campaign were willing to condemn the Klan. And we promptly went about, when the Republican candidate won, passing a Immigration Act in 1924 that restricted uh, people coming into this country to Nordics. And, you know, people forget that we like to think American history is like this progression, you know, with Martin Luther King, the civil rights and so on. But you can see American history very differently, which is moments of progress on civil rights issues and then horrible backlashes like happened after the Civil War when the Klan was actually founded. And these fights are hard fought, and there have always been large sections of American society that have not been for progress. And I hate to think that the Republican Party is falling into that camp, but it looks that way. It, you know, you can't even imagine Ronald Reagan, whatever your political beliefs might be, taking a position like Steve King. He was specifically not racist and legalized, you know, two million undocumented workers in this country. We, we can, it's, it's, it's unimaginable that something like that could happen today. Well, and now we have an attorney general who once famously said, whether it was joking or not, I don't know, but he said that, you know, I used to think the Klan was okay until I heard they smoked weed. Yeah, Sessions does not have a good record when it comes to these civil rights issues, and now he's in charge of, you know, the institution that has a civil rights division that he could, if he wanted, gut or put weak leadership into. He's also in charge of large sections of the U.S.'s immigration apparatus. So as Trump moves forward to have more workplace raids and to deport more people and so on, uh, with ICE, a lot of that administrative apparatus falls under the DOJ's purview. And so we have a person who does not have a good legacy on civil rights who couldn't get a federal judgeship in the 1980s now running this very powerful agency, and it's going to affect the civil rights of many, many people. Uh, what's interesting is we're also living in a time where that, that demographic change is coming. It's right. not as though populations of, uh, you know, American Latinos, American Muslims, American Asians, what, you know, what have you, are going to diminish over time. And, you know, you have to worry very much. Or is it like, are we going to be in a position where there's sort of racial strife at the basis of our political system? We certainly don't want that. Now, how important is online, the online component of hate in the growth today? It's absolutely critical. In fact, you can't even talk about hate groups 
um, or the hate phenomenon without understanding that, in fact, you know, the largest hate site on the web, an outfit called Stormfront, has more than 300,000 registered users. And most people who are involved in hateful ideology nowadays are not really card-carrying members necessarily of a group. They may or may not be. But there's lots and lots of them interacting online. That's where you learn how to hate, who to hate. And Dylan Roof was emblematic of that process because, as far as we know, he never interacted with any real-world hate group, right? He didn't go to a Klan rally or something like that. He simply got online, started looking into black-on-white crime, which uh, Google's algorithm led him to just a treasure trove of hate material with no counter-narrative. He got sucked in, he started posting on some hate sites, and then he killed a bunch of people. And that phenomenon is not going to go away. And in fact, it makes our white supremacists look a little bit more like ISIS nowadays, which recruits a lot online. And for those unfamiliar with Dylan Root, he's the the, the young man who... Um, went into a church, in, a black church in Charleston, and just opened fire. I forget how many he killed, but it was you know, over a dozen, I believe. And um, and actually was unap- unapologetic at his trial. Absolutely unapologetic. He, com- he came to believe completely, even though this is false, that black people were raping and murdering white people in the streets at very high levels. And that's what convinced him to get a weapon and to kill black people in that church in South Carolina because he thought he was actually saving white people from a crime wave that does not exist. And this is the problem with Google as well. Google is not a library. If Dylan Roof had walked into a library and said, I'd like to read about black and white crime, you know, a librarian would have taken him to FBI statistics that would have shown him none of this nonsense. But what Google does now, because the algorithm is monetized, is you start looking at one subject, it says, oh, you want more of that, and if it's a hate thing that you come upon, you're just going to get more and more hate, which doesn't help to show people what the truth is about a topic, but rather to play to their prejudices. And it's the problem we have on you know, Facebook and other places, and those processes that um, run our tech world have this terrible, terrible propagandistic downside to them. Now... I was at your office, well, I was at your the Morton Civil Rights Memorial outside your office in 1994. Uh, I had a, a deposition nearby, and I was done, and I decided to walk by. And outside your office is a, a famous um, sculpture by Maya Lin, who designed the Vietnam Memorial in, a, in similar kind of style. Um, it's a kind of a, a time wheel of events in the civil rights era and men people who were killed fighting for civil rights and uh, with a stream of flowing over the time wheel and then in the background is the, the quote from Martin Luther King until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream and in 1994 America you know I just assumed that there was probably more to that exhibit um, inside so I, I went to your door, and uh, I tried to get in, and it was locked, and notice all the windows were black, and in fact, the place seemed like a fortress. And and then uh, a voice came over and said, can I help you? And I just said, well, I'm just wouldn't mind seeing the rest of the exhibit. And they said, there is none, and you only can get in with an appointment. And it just struck me that a, a civil rights group like yours in the 90s having to be that fortified was troubling. and. And I imagine it not only has it not changed, it may even be worse today. Well, there's about, you know, there have been at times about 40 people in federal prison for either trying to, you know, blow up our building or kill our co-founder, Morris Dees. So we have a security situation that's uh, pretty severe. And, you know, our building remains a closed building to the public, you know, except by appointment, like what you experienced back then. Right. Uh, and those threats aren't reducing the more we, you know, you take on these kinds of violent people who are willing to commit domestic terrorism acts, you shouldn't be surprised uh, that you're going to face, you know, the sharp end of that of violence, too, right? So far, nothing has ever happened to anybody working at SPLC, so knock on wood. I can uh, nicely report, though, that that building that you tried to get into actually is now a museum dedicated to the martyrs of the civil rights movement. <laughs> so there's something positive for the visitors to come see. The, it's the, actually the quite lovely. of my visit. Um, <laughs> But yeah, but it, you know, I'm, I'm one of, I mean, it is a beautiful museum, and I'm really glad to hear that. But you know, I was also very troubled that you, you had to be on lockdown 
and you know, that that's the that's the troubling aspect of it. And I'm, have, have you yourself have you been targeted by people? Sure, sure. Any of us who do you know media for the law center, in other words, our names are out there and connected uh, with SPLC publicly, have faced you know various kinds of threatening situations. Uh, you know, and, and also, since this is, you know, a tech report, the fact that it's very easy to get public information about individuals now, it's legal to get them, like where I live and things like that, um, means that we, you know, those of us who talk to the press are open to doxing attacks. And, you know, some of my colleagues have had their parents' photos put on the web. And, you know, so we have to be very, very careful with these things um, because you can go after us online as well as in the real world. Well, um, one thing that we're will, we have to do is take uh, one last commercial break. But when we come back, we'll be wrapping up on this important topic. But you're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on Cranberry.fm. We'll be right back. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Is your website hacked? Is your website displaying error messages or loading slowly? Even if there are no signs of malicious activity, your site may still be compromised. Websites, like cars, require regular maintenance to perform at their best and not leave you stranded. At Fjorge, our website maintenance experts can help you assess which one of our maintenance plans will best support your needs. Visit FjorgeDigital.com or call 612-877-3840 and get the support and protection your website and business deserve. That's F-J-O-R-G-E Digital.com. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Content for your ears and everything in between. Cranberry.fm. The best gavel to gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. And we're back and we're talking about hate. USA, and we're talking with Heidi Barrett, the Southern Poverty Law Center. Now, Heidi, if people want to find out more about the Southern Poverty Law Center, where should they go? Well, we have a website, splcenter.org, that um, describes, you know, everything that's going on. You know, we've only been talking about hate here, but we also have a program called Teaching Tolerance, which is targeted at K through 12 schools and provides teachers with, you know, materials that are useful um, to deal with these difficult issues. And we have a very large legal um, department that does everything from mass incarceration cases to juvenile justice to children's rights to, uh, you know, suing over things like payday loans and bail practices, um, as well as suing hate groups. So the center has a lot of activities going on. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter and so on, so people can read more about us there as well. And we have links to the site on, on uh, our show notes at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Now, you are the author of Neo-Confederacy, a Critical Introduction. How did you get into this? Well, I mean, most people don't know this, but I actually have a Ph.D. in political science. <laughs> and so uh, when I came to the center, one of the movements that was growing at that time were neo-Confederate groups. These are groups that basically would like to reverse the outcome of the Civil War, right? They'd like right. an all-white run south, that kind of thing. They want to secede. And I took an interest in those groups because they were growing very rapidly in the early 2000s. And that book, um, which was published by the University of Texas Press, was a collaborative effort between myself and two other academics to take a real deep dive, an academic-level dive, into these organizations and this movement. Now, the neo-Confederate movement does, does have some, did have some links to people such as Ron Paul. 
for example. Yes. And he actually <laughs> yes. had neo-Confederates testify before one of his committees. That's right, and Steve King had a Confederate flag on his desk until uh, recently. And one of the groups that's very active on that scene, it's not as important today as it was back then, was called the Council of Conservative Citizens. And it was connected to Trent Lott, who was the majority leader in the Senate at the time. So, and, and dozens and dozens of politicians spoke at Council of Conservative Citizens events in the 90s, the late 90s and the early 2000s. What's interesting there is this is another abject example of where the GOP is heading because in 1998, the head of the um, GOP that year, I think it was Ed Gillespie, actually put something out saying no member of the Republican Party is allowed to speak at a Council of Conservative Citizens event because the group is white supremacist. Right. And so it's amazing how far we've gone, right, you know, where the GOP was openly against this kind of thinking, and here we are today. But, yeah, these neo-Confederate groups are still found in the U.S., mostly in the South, for obvious reasons, historical reasons. And they've actually become more militant, more anti-Semitic, and more hardline. You know, anti-Semitism didn't used to characterize them since the time of that, that, that book was released in 2008. And, and so sitting here today... Are are you optimistic, pessimistic? Um, God, it's, it's, I, I have to say that I think the the situation that we're facing with the administration and people like Steve King being able to say these things is very troubling. We just this was not for polite company not that long ago, which I considered really a victory against hate speech in the mainstream. Right, that people had come the view that you don't make white nationalist statements, that's left to the fringe. And right. so I find that very depressing. At the same time, there is so much organizing going on around the country and in particular localities against these kinds of things that, you know, we shouldn't just focus on the political class necessarily, but people are out in the streets and doing things to help victims of hate crimes and draw attention to these issues, and I find those to be very positive things. Um, people shouldn't be passive on these issues and just wait for their political leaders to step up, although that should be expected. They also need to, you know, sort of take matters in their own hands to create more positive environment. And we're seeing a lot of that now, probably because of the political dynamics. And I think that's uh, really wonderful. And, you know, whatever you say, the, the one thing that U.S. is not the same as is in 1924, although the foreign-born population is about the same as it was then, the populations here, you know, whether it's Mexican-Americans or something like that, are millions and millions of people. And I don't think most of us are going to allow them to, you know, simply be oppressed uh, in some way. Now, what, what, what is your view of Steve Bannon? Steve Bannon. Well, Steve Bannon is a very, um, very troubling person to have in the White House. First of all, his website has uh, Breitbart when he was running it, right? He left to join the campaign in August. The website has sections on it that it's, are indistinguishable from white supremacist sites, sections on, like, black crime and saying terrible things about Muslims and calling, you know, trans people trannies, like real crude stuff. Um, you know, Bannon himself told Mother Jones that he viewed, his, what, viewed Breitbart as the, the platform for the alt-right. That was an endorsement of racism, and that was a position that was saying, I'm fine with white supremacist extremists, you know, being on Breitbart and catering to them and putting out material that they like. So this is a little akin to the Steve King thing, right? You don't, except this guy's actually in the White House, right? He's not just a congressman right. from Iowa. Do we want somebody like that influencing policy? No. You know, his views on um, Muslims and on history are really, really extreme. One of his favorite books, Camp of the Saints, is a seriously racist tirade um, about immigrants flooding into Europe that I read several years ago. It's not only is it a poorly written book, but it's a ridiculous premise, and it's just bald-faced racism. So Bannon is, you know, huge, huge problem. And, yes, there's a, a book that seems to have um, grabbed his attention involving immigration in Europe that he, uh, he seems to like to refer to, The Camp of Saints. Yeah, that's the book I'm talking about. And the in the book, the main character is a guy named Turd, who's a, an Indian immigrant. I mean, it is just openly racist. And re Republican um, Linda, Linda Chavez, who has uh, served in both Bush, Bush administrations, 
um, or she herself said she was shocked at how racist it was. Yeah, well, this is the thing. Her boss at one time, job that she promptly quit, that, yeah, this was his favorite book, Camp of the Saints, and that man's name was John Tanton, and he republished that book in the United States. And John Tanton is a white nationalist who founded most of the anti-immigrant organizations in this country. So when Steve Bannon says he likes a racist screed like Camp of the Saints, he's endorsing more than that book's horrific vision. He's also endorsing a whole bunch of anti-immigrant organizations and thinking that are shaping policy today. We list some of those groups as hate groups, like the Federation for American Immigration Reform and the Center for Immigration Studies. Right, Their founder, John Tant, is the one who brought Camp of the Saints to the United States so that Steve Bannon could read this thing. And those groups are now shaping our immigration policy. So that's how deep these problems go. It's just it's astounding that dude, this man is that close to the White House, you know, to the president. I, I agree with you. It's a shocking thing. You, so if there was a department of hate in this, this government, who would be the secretary of it? <laughs> I guess we'd have to put Bannon in there and then maybe add Sessions and maybe Stephen Miller Sessions' longtime aides. I mean, aide, these are the people who have had the most interaction with hateful ideas, hate groups, extremists, you know, and so on. And I wish that they weren't so close to the White House. And let's not forget Sebastian Gorka, right, um, a national security advisor who apparently helped set up an anti-Semitic party in Hungary many years ago. So there's a lot of this going on right now. And uh, do you guys follow what's going on in the Netherlands with today's election? Yeah, well, we're very concerned that Trump, the Brexit vote, um, what's happening with the Gert Wilders party today, depending on what the outcome is in the election, that right-wing populism, a la Trump, is spreading everywhere, could affect Germany as well. And we don't want um, parties that are motivated by bias against populations, and Europe tends to be bias against Muslim immigrants, to be defining our future. It's... Um, it's really quite sad, and, you know, if Gert Wilders wins, if his party wins in the Netherlands, then a, you know, traditionally very tolerant democratic country will have succumbed to um, a very ugly message. That's true. And uh, one thing that I always thought we were somehow different than Europe, and I was in Europe right after the wall fell and was part of a, a pro an exchange program with the German government, and they were explaining the resettlement process they had where if you had been behind the, the, the Eastern Bloc, whether it's Russia or wherever, and been had one-eighth German blood, you could come back to Germany and become a citizen. But if you had lived in Germany throughout the post-war era and had you know, helped to rebuild the country, but happened to be Italian or Turk or wherever... It wasn't so easy. And so that's that's the challenge I always thought Europe faced to the extent that they define nationhood based on a certain ethnic character. And that, that's constantly going to be challenged as, as you have immigration. Whereas the United States, we don't have ethnic character. We have a constitution. We have beliefs and principles. And so I always thought that would give us cover that would protect us from that kind of you know, extreme nativist sentiment but hey, apparently i'm wrong well it turns out racial anxiety doesn't just happen in uh, europe it also happens in the united states i, I get what you're saying and rabidly anti-immigrant or racist messaging up until trump's election didn't really work at the you know at like the state level right. and the national level but now it has and so we are a little bit more like the Germans that you just described, and we have a lot of people in this country who are really freaked out by these changing demographics. And I had thought the United States was different on this front too, right? Not a country of blood and soil, but a country of sort of opportunity and law. Well, maybe we have to rethink that. I agree. Well, I want to thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you. Um, again, check. We have links to their Twitter feed and their website, Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, and good luck getting back to um, Montgomery on your travels, and um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And be sure to check out their website. They have useful information and in monitoring what is going on weekly on the, the, the hate front, sad to say. 
So um, thank you again. I just want to give a couple of quick shout-outs before we go. One is to Tara Moss. She is an Australian journalist who just launched a six-part series on Australian TV on cyber hate. And we have a link to the preview on our show notes. And then finally, um, my home state of Rhode Island. Um, they actually have two teams in the NCAAs that start today. Okay. Um, they only have four Division One basketball teams in the whole state, and two of them have made it to the dance, um, which for California will be equivalent to having 12 teams in the dance. So good luck to the Providence College Friars and the Rhode Island Rams as they go forth um, for the, only the fourth time that both of them have been in together. So good luck, and hope everyone enjoys March Madness. This is our Eyes of March edition. Uh, I hope it isn't as ominous as the uh, famous one with Julius Caesar, but um, have a good day for you. It's been great having you. Um, We'll be back with another edition right here on Cranberry.fm. Till then, have a great week. This is Bennett Kelly. Um, Thank you for joining us. Follow us on Twitter at Cyberlaw Radio, and check us out at the Internet Law Center. We're a full-service law firm at InternetLawCenter.net. Have a great week, everyone. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of Cranberry News Marketing and Cranberry.fm. Rebroadcasts or retransmission of this content without proper consent is prohibited. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.